good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, I'm the lead pastor. We are continuing our study in the book of Romans. This morning, uh, we, are, we are going to work our way, Lord willing, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the end of 16. And this morning, we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2. Before we dive in, though, um, I want to let you know we have a, uh, an event coming up that, that you are all welcome to attend. We are actually going to be hosting a dinner here. It's, uh, we'll be serving up some barbecue and, and uh, serving up some vision. Um, the goal behind it is to let people know uh, what our strategic plan is for this next season of growth and ministry at Trailhead Church. We are launching a new capital campaign. We did one, and uh, it was, it was uh, not, not only successful in the sense that it, it helped us get this building, but it was tremendously successful in the sense that it, it really impacted people's hearts and helped them grow in grace. We, we gained a lot of great stories of growth and transformation in that season. And we're inviting you to join us in, in this new season. And so if you would like to come, um, you are more than welcome to do so. Uh, we have aptly titled it in order to be very, very straightforward, uh, the Advanced Commitment Dinner. Um, so there's no bait and switch here. What's going on here is we're casting vision and we're asking you to pray about it, find out if you want to join us in it. Okay, we're not going to twist your arm, um, but we are going to invite you. And so you will have the opportunity once you've left to pray about it and come back and let us know if it is something that you will be involved in joining us uh, as we seek to continue to uh, move forward on that. Um, if you want to uh, come to the dinner, we do ask that you let us know because, of course, we are going to need to provide food. So visit Connection Point and, um, and, and let them know, or you can go straight to our website, trailheadonline.org uh, slash flourish, and you will get information about the, uh, the dinner there and, and a way to sign up. If you see people walking around with cameras, um, they're aliens and should be expelled, attack them immediately. <laughs> Kidding. Sorry, Dylan. Um, no, th these guys are actually putting together a, uh, uh, a film um, to help us with our capital campaign. We did one of these uh, previously, and it's just a powerful way to cast vision. What they're doing today is just capturing B-roll, just people moving in the background. There will be voiceovers and the rest of that. Um, and, and so if you have any concerns or questions about that, feel free to hit connection point and let us know, but, but that's what's happening. All right, today, as we dig into uh, Romans 12, um, today Paul's going to be taking on American Christianity. Uh, not directly, obviously, because he lived several thousand years uh, before American Christianity was even a thing. Um, but he is critiquing a, a human problem of sin that was present in his day and in religious people of his day as much as it is present in ours, and that is our need to create us, them, paradigms, structures in which we are right, they are wrong, where we have honor and they have shame. This is really, really dangerous to the human soul, this, this propensity to create us, them, paradigms. But in few areas, is it more dangerous than when it is coupled with our sense of morality? Because when we create us-them paradigms where we are moral and they are immoral, we not only feel self-justified in judging them, we assume God judges them right along with us. And we often think we become the voice of God in our judgment of them. Um, the church needs to hear this as much as God's people did in the first century. Um, because here's the thing, like them, we're, we're in danger not just of dishonoring God with our disobedience and our hypocrisy, 
we are in danger of opening our holy and just and right and beautiful God up to blasphemy from those who don't even know him because we misrepresent him. All right, so there you go. It's going to be fun. Let's, uh, last week, uh, we kind of set the stage. At the beginning of chapter 2, we dug in and we saw that, that um, every time we judge others, Every time we feel superior to them and judge them in our hearts and in our minds, we are, in fact, condemning ourselves. Because ultimately, as we lift ourselves up in others, in, in pride, looking at their weaknesses, we are guilty of the very things we, we condemn, and therefore we actually condemn ourselves. We have a way of looking at life where life is three groups, right? We think of God who's up here, who's perfect and holy and just and right, and everything's good. And then there's us, right? We're a little lower than God. We're not arrogant enough to think that we're actually on the same plane as Him, um, but we at least are trying to get closer, right? We're trying to do right. We're trying to be moral. We're trying to, to get this thing, right? So we're here, and then, and then there's them. And those are the people that seem to just be running the opposite direction. They're, they're, the, they're the ones that, that um, are... are are bad and immoral and, and just plain dumb. Um, so here's the irony, is that God only sees, uh, instead of three groups, He only sees two groups, right? Uh, we looked at this last week, that, that when He looks at humanity, and he, he, sees, he says two kinds of people, those that are perfect and those that aren't. And one group's really big and the other's really small. Right? The ones that are perfect, there's really only one person in that club, and his name is Jesus. He's the only human that ever walked the face of the earth that continually sought the glory of God instead of his own, sought to honor every single person created in the image of God, so honoring God by honoring those that were created in his image, and only one person who walked the face of the earth trying to find his source of life in God, the source of life. He didn't look to things that weren't God to do for him what only God could do or to be for him what only God could be. He sought glory, honor, and immortality patiently and persistently. And then there's, then there's us. Now, this wouldn't have made any sense at all to the Jewish mind. The argument that Paul just laid out last week, it wouldn't have made any sense at all to the Jewish mind. They would have been like, we, where are we in this paradigm? Where do we fit in? Um, they would have argued that, that, that everybody, of course, needs forgiveness. They understood that. Even the, even the law of the Old Testament, right? It had a lot of standards, but it also had a sacrificial system so that when you broke those standards, there was a way that if you were defiled, you could be purified. If, if you had sinned, you could be forgiven, right? So they understood everybody needed forgiveness. So they would say, look, um, even though everyone needs forgiveness, not everyone needs forgiveness to the same degree. Paul, your, your structure is too flat. It doesn't allow for nuance. How, how can you level out the playing field like that? Where do we fit in to that? They would argue not everyone is the same, right? Not all human sin is the same sin. Not all human righteousness is the same righteousness. Where, where do we fit in? Because we are unique of all the ethnicities, all the people groups of the face of the earth. Because God himself called us out. God himself developed a relationship with us. God himself actually created us, right? He called Abraham, and out of Abraham, he created an entire new ethnic group called the Jews. Where do we fit in? Because you don't create a space for us. See, they saw the world um, in, in kind of a unique way that we see reflected in our passage. They saw the world filled with broken people that, that were alienated from God, far from God, needed forgiveness from God, right? And they were part of that, right? But... 
They were unique. Even though they were part of it, they were unique from it because they were not part of the Gentile world. The word Gentile is a word that means um, other nations than Jews. The Greek word is ethnos, right? It just every other ethnicity besides the Jewish ethnicity. They were they were the Gentiles, all the rest of the world. And out there in the Gentile world were, were all of the polytheists. They worshipped all the different gods. They had all the immorality. They had all the degradation. They had all the sin. They, they had all the injustice, right? We're the people of God with the law of God. Those people are lawless, right? And so out there is the Gentile world. We're separated from that. There is a circle that surrounds us, that separates us from the rest of that world, and that circle is called the law. And as we read through our passage today, and Paul talks about the law, he's not talking about the civil law. He's not talking about my personal law or my rule of life. He's talking specifically about the Torah, the Old Testament law that God gave to Israel through Moses that set them apart. Now, that law really did make them weird and unique on the face of the earth, right? That law governed everything from from what they wore to what they ate to when they worked um, and and, and what they said and who they did business with and how they did that business. And, 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 And so what ended up happening is they followed that law. It made them, right, as the King James version puts it, right? They were a peculiar people, right? They, they were a unique people, peculiar on the face of the earth because the law set them apart. So there was a circle that marked them out and set them apart from the rest of the world. And inside that circle was another one. And that circle was circumcision. Circumcision was the sign given to the descendants of Abraham that they were in the lineage of blessing. God showed up to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants, and out of your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. And circumcision is the sign of that blessing. And then later in the law of Moses, it was codified. It was actually made part of the law. So so in order to obey the law, you had to actually be circumcised. So circumcision set them apart um, from the rest of the world. And then inside that circle, right, they had the law which set them apart. They had circumcision, which was a sign of a covenant relationship with God where God committed to bless them and through them to bless the world. And inside of that was another circle. They were Jewish. They were the actual, physical, genetic children of of Abraham through Isaac, the child of promise. They They were Jewish, right? Here's the thing. A Gentile could become a follower of God. A Gentile could become a proselyte. They could come under the law, They could say, I believe in Yahweh, and I believe the law is the manifestation of his will, and they could voluntarily become proselytes. They could become um, Jewish in worship. They could even be circumcised as part of their obedience to the law, but they could never cross that final line into actually becoming physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac, the child of promise. Each of these circles was another layer of honor. Another layer through which they saw themselves set apart from the world. Each circle was a wall of protection against the judgment of God. Right? They might be judged, but not us. Why? Because we've been given the law. We are the children of circumcision. We are the descendants of Abraham, the ones that have been given the promise of God that we will be blessed, right? Those those circles not only give us honor and set us apart from those guys who are covered in shame, those circles protect us and shield us. We're safe even if they're not. 
So in our passage today, Paul is going to go through the process of dismantling those circles, tearing down those dividing walls of pride and self-protection. Um, those walls that they felt safe behind, he is going to expose them. Um, these layers of presumed honor that they thought made them better, Paul's going to show them they're actually filled with shame. Filled with shame. Our passage is broken into three paragraphs, and we're going to look at each paragraph in turn. The first one is verses 12 through 16. And in that paragraph, um, Paul's looking at, at this perception, man. The, the Jews were like, there's a huge difference between us and the Gentile world, right? The ethnicity of the Jew and all the other ethnicities of the world. There's a huge difference between us um, because we are under the law. We've been set apart by God and been given uh, the Torah unlike them. And Paul says, you know that wall? It doesn't provide you any protection. Take a look at verses 11 through 13. I'm going to start in verse 11 because it's the, the last thought from last week, but it's the, the ground for this week, right? For God shows no partiality. That was his point last week we looked at. 4 in verse 12 bridges, bridges right for that. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In other words, those Gentiles who, who don't have the Torah, in fact, they've never even heard of it. They didn't even know the Old Testament law existed, right? Those people who are without the law, they're going to perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. He's saying God's going to judge, right? We saw this, this um, several weeks ago, 118, where, where um, Paul says that, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, which is, we hate that verse, right? It's really uncomfortable, but it's really good news because what it means is that God is not morally indifferent to humanity's attempt to de-God God, to, to try to unthrone God and become God in his place. He is not morally indifferent to our cosmic treason and attempt to undo the very fabric of the universe, placing ourselves in the position of greatest honor and power. Nor is he indifferent to our unrighteousness, our unjust actions toward others who are created in his image. In our attempt to un-God God, we try to exercise God authority over others, and we end up abusing them and using them. And, 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 and seeking to rob them of dignity that we might be increased, rob them of resources that we might be enriched. God is not morally indifferent to our attempt to ungod God or to be unjust to those that are created in His image. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven even now against this and against those who would suppress these desires within themselves or pretend like they weren't even there in unrighteousness, right? And, and we saw that, that in this, um, God judges. But what he's saying in our passage today is that he's going to judge according to uh, the amount of clarity that's been revealed. In other words, there are those who didn't receive the Torah. They'll, they'll be judged by the amount of truth that they had, the things that have been revealed to them, because they're suppressing them in unrighteousness. They're, they're without excuse, but, but you've been given the Torah, You've been given the actual revealed will of God. I, God has actually shown you so much more. And guess what? 
They'll be judged by what they know. You're going to be judged by what you know. You're going to be judged under the law. They'll be judged by the natural law. We'll talk about that in a minute. In other words, the law doesn't exempt you from judgment. It makes it more specific. The law isn't some special favor that that excludes you from judgment. It actually makes it harsher. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, are they not a law to themselves? Even though they do not have the law? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even sometimes excuse them. See, every human culture um, reflects a sense of, of, of moral right and wrong. Every human culture, um, there are different manifestations, different ways of seeing it, but in every human culture, there are certain things that are right and certain things that are, that are wrong. They, 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 they reveal that there is a universal understanding of morality, things like don't murder. That's common in every human culture. Don't steal, right? Don't, don't, don't lie for personal gain. Don't, don't dishonor and abuse your parents. These, these are things that are reflected in every human culture in different degrees, right? Even in a cannibalistic culture, it, it's not okay to eat your friends, right? It, the rules are kept in different ways, but the rules are still there. Every culture has a way of keeping the rules, and every culture has a way of breaking the rules in ways that are justified internally in that culture, but they all reflect a universal understanding of morality, that there are, in fact, rights and wrongs, good and bad. And and Paul is saying this is, in fact, part of the universal revelation of God in, in the human heart. And as a result, those without the law will be judged by what they know. Everybody um, has a conscience. And that conscience reveals to them their guilt. Like everybody has a conscience. Every, every human culture deals with conscience. I mean, unless you're a psychopath or a sociopath, then you're just, that's, that's you know, those, those, there's something broken up here, right? Something's not working right. But for a normal human being, conscience is part of, of how they operate in life. And what's the main thing the conscience does? Through our conflicting thoughts, it condemns us right? That inner critic generally is not our friend. We, we don't like become friendly with our inner critic. Why? Because it is continually showing us that we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone the standards of God. Now, he does say every once in a while, your conscience might even approve of your actions, but its main job is pretty much to show you where you fall short. Every once in a while, it might excuse you. So, you have the law the Torah. They don't. But that doesn't make you as special as you think. They have the law too. You just have a greater special revelation of what's been revealed to all. Take a look at verse 16. Um, Their conscience through conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus, right? You, you have the law. Congratulations. Your judgment's going to be more specific. You have the law. Congratulations. Your judgment is going to be according to that law because you knew more, you suppressed more, and in suppressing more, you violated 
more. God will judge. See, he's not going to judge by whether or not people think you're a good person. He's not going to judge by whether or not you live up to societal standards. He's not going to judge based on whether your good works outweigh your bad works. He is going to judge based on the secret intents of your heart. In other words, do you do things in order to glorify God, honor those created in the image of God, and to find your life in the things that God designed to give you life? Or are you motivated by a continual self-centered, self-seeking, self-glorifying, self, if it's all about you? Right? Those are the only two ways to approach life. He's already established that. The secret intents of your heart will be exposed in the judgment, and in the judgment, you'll be held accountable. And for the Jew, they'll be accountable to more because they were shown more. Paul moves on now to get more specific in the next paragraph. At the beginning of the chapter, he was, he was in his diatribe uh, structure, which is a, a rhetorical structure, addressing somebody called O-Man. And, and now he shifted in this last paragraph to talking about the law, so definitely talking about Jewish um, topics of interest. But now he goes very, very specific to actually speaking to Jewish readers. Take a look at verses 17 through 20, where he kind of exposes their motivations. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, there's three identity markers. Right? The Jewish reader would have found three things here that, that are intrinsic to their identity. You call yourself a Jew. You are a physical descendant of Abraham through Isaac, right? That center of the, of the honor circles, right? And you rely on the law, right? I lean on the law as God's revelation and, and special gift to the Jewish people to set us apart, to make us unique, to make us different from all the other nations, right? We rely on the law and we boast in God. And what that would mean is, is we of all the people on the face of the earth have been given a covenant relationship with Yahweh the true, one true creator, God. That's our boast. That's our honor. You guys have a bunch of false gods that aren't even gods. You worship things instead of the God who created those things. We worship God, the creator of all things, because he's revealed himself to us. We boast in God. Three identity markers that lead to eight behaviors. Verse 18, and we know his will and we prove what is excellent. All right, why? Because God's revealed it to us. He, he showed us things he hasn't shown anyone else. And that allows us to, to see what is good and right, right? Because you are in instructed in the law, right? From our youth, we have been trained to understand the law and grow in our, our appreciation of the law. Verse 19, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, right? The, the law was given specifically so that um, uh, not only could it control and, and make the, the, uh, the nation of Israel unique in, in all the human groups on earth, but it was actually given so that they might be missionaries with the revelation God gave to them. They were supposed to carry what was revealed to them to all the other nations of the earth that they might know it too, right? So they considered themselves guides to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Verse, verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. All right, pause there for a minute because everything Paul's just said, Right? In the Jewish identity, as they're thinking about why they're different, everything he said is just tr is true. All of those things are, are true, and they're all biblical. And they, and, 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 and they were all given in honor to a very specific people group. See, the problem isn't that they're 
wrong in those assumptions. The problem is they don't recognize what position that actually places them in. They put themselves in a position of honor as a result. Paul says you're now in a position of accountability. Not only do you not live up to the law, right? It's not the hearer of the law, it's the doer, right? Not only do you not live up to the law, you don't live up to the mission that came with it, right? You see your election, and and election's a biblical concept. God elected the nation of Israel. He chose the nation of Israel. He actually created the entire Jewish ethnicity by choosing Abraham and and designing a line through him that would ultimately become um, his covenant people, right? He he, he chose them. Election's a real thing, but, but here's what we do. We take election, and we think, I've been elected to certain privileges, I've been elected to certain honors. An election is never to privilege. It's to responsibility. God says, I'm going to bless you, but never for the purpose of you simply receiving that blessing, and so that you will then become the conduit of that blessing to others. So they, they not only failed in living up to the law, but they failed in the purpose of God giving them the law, the missionary impulse of, of love. You have the law, but it doesn't protect you. It condemns you. Take a look at verses 21 and 22. You, you have all of these things are so true about you. Let me ask you a few questions. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? He's saying, look, you hold to the law. You boast in the law. Your identity is found, your security, your honor. You sing its praises. And then you turn around and you break it. It's interesting that Paul specifically chose these three sins. He could have chosen their thousands that he could have gone with, but he went with stealing, lusting, and robbing temples. And I really wrestled with that this week. I was trying to figure out why Paul specifically chose those. Um, But I think it actually has a tie to what he's already said. Back in verses 6 through 8, if you just look back there in chapter 2, this is what we looked at last week. Talking about God, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. God's going to judge. He's And he judges everyone according to their works. Verse 7, to those who by patience, never failing, never tiring pursuit in well-doing seek for glory god's glory honor giving honor and and do uh, love to those created in his image and immortality seeking to find life and the things god designed for us to find life in somebody who he'll give eternal life to that person right again there's only one person in that category jesus verse eight but for those who are self-seeking those that are motivated by self-glory, those, those that, that everything they do is somehow connected to self-promotion, self-preservation, self-security, or self-glory. As a result, they don't obey the truth, but don't obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. The three things that Paul picks out have one basic common theme. They're all manifestations of selfishness. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? You, you abhor temples, right? You, you look at all those, those, those pagan idolaters and you are so disgusted by their pagan rituals and pagan worship. 
Are you willing to go into their temple to pilfer their wealth that it might enrich you? Stealing, lusting, robbing temples, all manifestations of strong, selfish desires. And his point is clear. You boast in the law, but you dishonor God in the breaking of it. The result, verses 23 and 24, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You're so obsessed with your own honor. You're so obsessed with this, or, this honor-shame paradigm of life, and yet you dishonor your God by breaking the law. There are a few things he could have said that would have been more cutting to the Jewish mind, people that are rooted in honor-shame paradigms of life. You actually dishonor the very God who gives you honor. Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Not only do you dishonor God with your behavior, you open up his character to blasphemy from people who don't know him because they think you represent him. They look at you and they think, well, if you're following that God, you must be like that God. You open your God up to blasphemy. In an honor-shame culture, there's, there are a few things Paul could have revealed that would have brought more shame to them. Verses 25 through 29, he switches from talking about the law to talking about this next circle of, of pride, of honor, and that's circumcision, right? In verse 25, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. This, this next wall of protection, this next source of honor, Paul's like, yeah, that circumcision stuff, yeah, that's, that's an illusion too. If you don't keep the covenant of law, what good's the symbol? Physical circumcision is a symbol of your being set apart from, from your being cut off from evil. You're, you're being committed completely and totally to God, right? And some of you are like, now, Steve, come on, man, circumcision is a male thing. How does that include the... Remember, they think in collectivist terms, right? We're very, very individualistic, but, but circumcision wasn't just something done by individuals. It was an, an identity of the entire community. And so everybody in the community would have thought of themselves as being of the circumcised. And he's saying, look, you have the symbol symbol's really going to do you any good if you don't have the reality that it symbolizes? Do you think that, that it's going to protect you? I mean, it's a powerful symbol. But it's only powerful if you actually have the reality that it represents. Otherwise, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It has absolutely no protective value. But Paul's not content to just say your pride is misplaced. He also wants to go on and, and make, make it clear that that contempt you heap on others, calling them the uncircumcised, it was a derogatory way they referred to all the non-Jewish nations. That shame you put on them is actually heaped on your own head. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. So if a man who is uncircumcised, somebody who doesn't have the law, keeps the precepts of the law, theoretically, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. He's saying the reality is more important than the symbol. If a Gentile 
theoretically kept the law but weren't physically circumcised, do you really think God would hold it against them? They didn't have the symbol, but they had the reality? And do you think that, that, that they would not then stand in judgment over you who have the symbol, but not the reality? You're covered by the very shame you project, and the very honor you claim as your own would be theirs. In verses 28 and 29, Paul moves into the, the tightest, the most inner sanctum of identity. He's gone through the law, he's gone through circumcision now in verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His is not from man, but from God. Now Paul goes after the central identity marker, the central point of their of their honor and their pride. You think you're secure. You think you're in a position of honor because you are a genetic, physical descendant of Abraham through Isaac. You think because you can trace your genetic line all the way through Isaac, the child of promise, to Abraham, the man who was given the promise, you are therefore deserving of that promise. You are a child of the blessing, deserving of that blessing, because of your physical descendancy. Paul's making the point that not all physical descendants of Abraham are Jews. Just because you have the genetic line doesn't mean you're in the line of blessing. Abraham was blessed not because of his genetics, but because of his faith. And true Jews have the faith of Father Abraham, not just the genes. And what that means is, is not all those who are of Israel are Israel. Not all those who have the physical descendancy of Judaism are Jews. Take that one step further. It also means that those who have the faith of Father Abraham, even if they're not genetically descended from Abraham, are children of Abraham in the circle of blessing because the descendancy is passed down through the gift of faith, not the gift of genetics. You are not a Jew. Now, Paul's going to unpack this more later. He just hints at it here, and there's a lot more to be said. But we get to Romans chapter 4, and, and, and then we get more extensively into 9 through 11. We'll talk about God's intention for the nation of Israel and how this all plays out. But, but his point here is clear. You have circles of honor that are actually just layers of self-righteousness. That self-protection that you think you feel, completely an illusion right? The law doesn't justify you. It actually brings you under stricter judgment. The circumcision that marks you doesn't mark you for honor because it's just a symbol. And since you don't have the reality, it actually becomes a mark of shame. And being a physical descendant of Abraham does not make you a descendant of promise. You might be left with a few questions legitimately at this point. If this is true, who in the world would ever want to be born Jewish? 
Why would you ever want to be born under the covenants that God created with this people if those covenants simply serve to bring them under greater judgment? If they have no ability to perform, but greater accountability in the performance, is God's promised blessing actually a bait-and-switch curse? Do they actually get a worse deal because God chose them? and promise to bless them? Those are great questions. I'm glad you're asking. We're going to start digging into those next week um, because those are the very questions Paul opens up with in chapter 3, okay? So, so we're going to be moving into the next chapter next week, and, and I'm just going to leave it there um, as we get into it then. To wrap us up, I want to bring us back to the first point that I made, that Paul isn't just talking about ancient Jews. He is, in fact, talking about and to us as modern American Christians. This summer, uh, Den Hannabarger, who's one of our elders, gave a presentation at our elder retreat uh, to the rest of the elders. He had been doing some reading, and, and, and he um, came and, and basically shared some information uh, from one of his books with us, and it was really, really insightful. I mean, it's really sparked my thinking. The book was by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. I'm going to warn you, he's not a believer, so if you pick it up and read it, there's going to be stuff in there. You're going to be like, wait a minute, he's an atheist. He is. Um, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have some tremendous insight into the human condition, why people think the way they do or how they, they create um, tribal identities or things like that. And so um, I would encourage you, if, if you're interested, to go ahead and pick it up and read it. Um, but I want to share some of the insights that I found really compelling and really, I couldn't get away from as I was studying this. He makes the case that our moral convictions are not the result of our intelligent, reasoned thinking. That our moral convictions are actually an outgrowth of something much deeper, our values. That's very simply a, a way of saying that we're not led by our heads, we're led by our hearts, which is a very biblical idea, right? What, what, um, what the heart wants uh, the will chooses and the mind justifies. It's a very simple formula, but it's a profound insight into how we go through life, right? What the heart wants, we're driven by desires, the will chooses, and then we figure out ways to justify it. He would say that, that our value system, our morals are actually created by values. The values are like an elephant and our mind is like the guy riding it, <laughs> right? So the elephant goes where it wants to go and the mind just turns around and figures out how to make sense of it. It looks at the values that we have and it creates moral codes. These are things that are good and these are things that are bad. These are the things that bring honor, and these are the things that bring dishonor, right? And, and so as a result, we create a moral code by which we find honor, and we look at others and we say, you have shame. This spectrum of values that he identifies is super familiar and pretty compelling. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me um, because I want you to take a look. These are, the, these are the fundamental values we all have, we just have in different ways right? So, so care versus harm. We all value care versus harm. Fairness versus cheating. We all value fairness in some, right, over cheating. We all value liberty over oppression. We all value loyalty over betrayal. We all value authority over subversion. You're like, no, I don't like authority. 
Okay, this doesn't mean that you love all authority. But you do love the expression of authority when it prevents subversion, right? You love authority every single time somebody tries to break into your house and kill you, right? You love authority. You love sanctity over degradation. In other words, there are things that are pure that we want to keep pure, things that are beautiful we want to protect in their beauty. We, we all value this idea of sanctity over degradation. Can we all start here, right here? Can we all agree that these are values on which we all agree? These are all good things, right? I think we can all start there. Nod your head. That's really important because where we're going, it's, getting, it's going to get dicey, okay? So we're all starting on the same page. These are all values that we, that we hold to. The challenge is that we tend to emphasize certain values over others. We tend to think of some values as more important than others. The progressives, the liberals in our culture tend to skew toward the top of the list. The conservatives tend to skew toward the bottom. Progressives tend to have a really, really high value of care versus harm, fairness versus cheating, liberty versus oppression. Conservatives tend to have a really high value of loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus aversion, and sanctity versus degradation. Now, we all have the same values. We just emphasize them in different ways. Progressives focus, when they look at the human history and, and the story of our current cultural context, they see it as a narrative of heroic liberation, where history has progressively moved to give a voice to people who deserved it but didn't have it and freedom to people who didn't have it but, but deserved it, right? They, of heroic liberation, they focus on how power has been abused to limit people's freedom and dignity. And as a result, they tend to mistrust power. They tend to mistrust authority and hierarchy and tradition. Why? Because those can become the very structures and tools that are used to keep people disempowered. To keep people who have no voice from gaining it, people who, who deserve dignity from growing into it. Conservatives, on the other hand, tend to focus on heroic defense. When they look at human history and the history of our current cultural context, they tend to see a narrative of, of heroic protection against the attack on things that are worth protecting and need to be protected. They tend to focus on how what is good needs to be protected from being dismantled or undermined. And as a result, they tend to mistrust things that are new when those new things are seeking to overthrow existing structures or undermine established orders that they think are intrinsic and necessary for for healthy authority and sanctity. One focuses on what needs to be challenged and changed. The other focuses on what needs to be protected and defended. Can we recognize once again, we all have the same values. And we would all agree that there are some things that should be overthrown and upended. And there are some things that should be protected and preserved. 
Now, I know this is an oversimplification, and I know some of you are ready to argue with me, but, but be patient with me, because I think this is insightful. Because what ends up happening, because we have a skewed perspective on our values, we have the same values, but we have a skewed perspective on those values, it creates a different moral structure. And what ends up happening is we look at people that are motivated by values that we hold, but they hold in in, in much greater emphasis, and, and we're tempted to say, they're immoral. They're We're the moral ones, they're the immoral ones. Us, we, we're we're the true Christians. I'm not even sure they're Christians. We're the true Americans. They're not even Americans. Why do they, they hate America. They just leave. We see those who disagree with us as fundamentally immoral and flawed. Like the ancient Jews, we build circles of inclusion and exclusion. And we've talked about this previously. We can create circles of inclusion out of anything, anything, right? The silliness of what you wear versus what you don't wear, the brand of your clothing, the kind of car, right? But for this morning, I want to focus specific on the us-them circles that we create that are self-justifying, self-protecting, and other-condemning, right? We look, at, we look at all of America, And we think, I'm an American, like all of America, but I've got an outer circle. I'm a Republican. That separates me from all of America. I'm now in the circle of Republican. And inside that circle is another circle. I I believe in open market economy and morally controlled society. And inside that circle is another circle that, that is really, really central to my identity as a conservative. And that's the value of the unborn and the protection of the unborn. That's at the heart. Then there are other people who look at America and they say, I'm an American. I'm in this broader circle, but there's a circle that marks me out and makes me different, and that's that I'm a Democrat. And inside that circle is the value of of dismantling oppressive systems, using governmental authorities to redistribute power, to dismantle governmental systems or social systems that are in place that that devalue some and, and, and empower others, that distribute wealth inappropriately or power in ways that don't show the actual dignity of all the people in society, that circle. And then inside that circle, the very core is a, is a deeper, more powerful circle that we value everyone. Everyone. Right? And, and the Christian, democratic Christians that I talk to, they say, we value everyone from the womb to the tomb, not just the unborn, all of them. We fight for all of them. Not one has any greater voice than another. We, we all of them. And I know right now some of you want to argue with me because I know I'm in danger of triggering your pride and your fear. Some of you want to say that I've misrepresented you or I've misrepresented them. Self-justifying defensiveness. Listen, Paul's word to us this morning is really, really instructive because if, if we take nothing else away from it, it's this. We need to stop focusing on their hypocrisy and start focusing on our own. If we take nothing else away from this passage, it is critical that we walk away from that. That it is our pride and our sin that actually brings us under the very wrath of God. 
that causes us to focus on the hypocrisy of others while ignoring our own so we can create us-them paradigms where we are the moral. We are the honored. We are the right. I'm not even sure they're human. Paul's calling us to stop finding our security and our identity and our personal circles of honor and value. We need to stop creating artificial structures. So I'm in danger of poking some sensitive places, but I'm here. And as Paul does, I will follow. Let me ask you a few questions. You who value tolerance, are you intolerant? You who value personal morality, do you justify the immorality of power brokers who use their power in a way that benefits you? You who are against systemic racism, are you prejudiced? You who are against individual welfare, are you for government bailouts of corporations when their failure threatens your personal wealth? I can keep going, but I think I won't. Paul's point is clear. Our us-them systems serve one purpose, to justify ourselves and demonize them. So we can see them as corrupt and us as the good guys. These circles that we think promote our honor and protect our rightness are filled with our shame, our hypocrisy, and our self-deception. Listen, y'all, it is our pride that divides us, not our morality. It is our sin that separates us, not our rightness. And by God's grace, it is our humility that can unite us. Not our common political convictions or even our common moral convictions, but our common need and our common Savior. We live in an increasingly polarized society. Again, this is not a new thing in the world's stage. The ancient world was just as polarized. It's a human problem, not an American problem. But if we are going to protect our beautiful shared experience of grace, we need to fight to protect the bond of peace that we have together in Jesus. That we have together in grace. See, Paul's message is really clear. The real danger is not out there. It's in here. It is in here. The real danger isn't that we might lose to the other side. The real danger is that we would think that somehow by picking a side, we can, in fact, undo the damage we've done in our sin. There's only one side. And that's the side of humility embracing grace. 
There's only one party that brings genuine fullness of life, and that's the party of Jesus. Our hope was never in any one side. Each side is a glorious ruin. Each side has pieces that are glorious, and each side has pieces that are ugly. And one side's going to fix certain problems and bring other problems, and the other's going to fix other problems and bring other problems. And, and, and in the end, our hope isn't in either one, praise God. Our hope is in Jesus. Jesus did something that is completely unthinkable. He did the exact opposite of what we do. In Philippians 2, I don't have time to flip there, and I'd love to preach a whole other sermon, but I'm not going to. But in Philippians 2, it says, He who existed in the very form of God, outer circle of broadest glory, emptied himself of self-interest, of, of emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, took on the form of man. And not only that, he took on the form of a servant that was so low that he actually went to the cross. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He went from the position of greatest honor to the position of greatest shame. Why? So, so that those who believe in him might actually be covered in a righteousness they could never earn and receive a gift they could never claim. Their greatest problem could be solved and their greatest debt could be paid and they could receive a righteousness they could never earn. Jesus did the exact opposite of what we're obsessed in doing. Instead of creating structures of honor that separated himself from dishonor, he actually entered into the dishonor. Became the embodiment of our shame so that in dying under the guilt of our, of our, of our treachery against God and rising again to new life, he might invite us into the honor that his love secured for us. How ridiculously ironic that we as followers of Christ would claim in the name of God that we're somehow honoring God by recreating structures of honor and shame based on our own hypocrisy. It is a disgusting example of the depravity of the human soul justifying itself in the name of God even as it defames God. We dishonor our God, and we open him up to blasphemy from those that think that we in our hypocrisy somehow actually represent him. Followers of Christ, we are called to humility. We are called to grace, and we are called to love. Anybody? whether it's a religious or a political leader that would call you into these circles of honor and shame to find your identity, to defeat those who are the enemy instead of loving them as God has called you to do, that person is the enemy of your soul. Let's fight for grace. I'm going to close this word of prayer. And uh, we'll move into a time of reflection. We'll share communion together in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that, um, man, this morning you, you, <laughs> you take out the scalpel, you fillet my soul, you open up my shame and you expose it, not for the purpose of destroying me, not for the purpose of showing me things that, that I can't fix so that I will be swallowed in despair, so that in that place of need I might see how great a Savior I've been offered.
What great love has been offered to me. Father, I pray that this morning you might use this text to undo our pride, to humble our haughty spirits, to allow us to see that these circles of inclusion and exclusion of pride and shame are illusionary self-deceptions. That we might find our joy not in in the fact that we're right, but in the fact that you are. Not not in our ability to to do the right thing, but the fact that you did the right thing. Not, Not in our ability to fix ourselves, but in the reality that it is only your love that fixes us. Spirit, will you invite us to that grace this morning? And will you invite us to that radical humility? Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.